everyone merry christmas a happy hanukkah kwanzaa boxing day solstice to all my pagans out there happy holidays is what i'm trying to say this is going to be the last three right turns that i record this year i'm going to be taking a break to spend some time with my family recharge the old batteries i'll be returning january 6th i think or thereabouts around that date and uh also uh sorry about the delay in this podcast my wife and i just celebrated our fourth anniversary uh that and other holiday related stuff and bald move related stuff and holiday related bald move related stuff uh (laughs) kind of kept uh me from getting this uh, episode out so on this episode since we're living through the darkest time of the year, literally December to solstice, it's going to be the shortest days of the year is what I'm getting at. I thought we could focus on something, you know, bright and positive because there's a lot of bad things happening right now. A lot of people are dying that shouldn't be. Our government seems to be paralyzed to do anything comprehensive, uh, or really anything to help people out with it. We have a president who's doing about as much damage to the concept of fair elections and democracy here in America as he possibly can on his way out. Hundreds of Republican leaders around the country are supporting him to the end on this nonsense. And just yesterday, the Supreme Court refused to hear the latest cracking bullshit stuff that comes before them. Maybe we're drawing to an end to this phase of American politics, finally. Maybe. But I suspect we're going to be feeling the effects in America here for years. And it's just, it's just so pathetic and sad and depressing. And you look ahead to the future president elect Biden and he's released his proposed cabinet picks. And you know what? I got some thoughts and I want to go over that because I think in the next four years, it's going to be as much about managing the conflicts between like neoliberals and leftists as it will be about opposing conservatism. But hell, Biden's not even sworn in yet. So there's lots of time for that. Instead, I want to focus on some good stuff, something good we can do right now and some good maybe we can do a decade or two from now. Who knows? We're going to do a bit of dreaming, going to to do some some Christmas dreaming. But first, let's let's talk reality. Let's talk current day. There is a runoff election in Georgia for two Senate seats. This is a high stakes game. It's a winner take all for control of the Senate and not just winner. We have to win both seats. If we win both seats, if the Democratic Party secures both of those seats, we may see some strides of progress in this country in the next two years. If we lose one or both, the next two years is going to be total obstruction in Congress. I mean, there's going to be some obvious uh, ground to be gained in undoing some of the terrible executive orders that Trump has passed and passing some of our own. But there's just going to be not a lot happening legislatively because everything's going to go to Mitch McConnell and he's going to kill it all. So it's it's all up to Georgia. So if you're a Georgian, I really hope you got registered to vote because it's too late to do so now. And I hope you've requested your absentee ballot and that you get your vote in to make this happen before January 5th. If you're not a Georgian, like I did on the last podcast, I really recommend you going to Stacey Abrams, fairfight.com to donate to Reverend Warnick uh, or John Ossoff's respective campaigns and to sign up to volunteer to help nationally. Uh, One thing uh, Aiden uh, from the last podcast mentioned uh, in Twitter after we recorded and I released it is that uh, and this is something I didn't even think about is the concept of text banking. 
you know, uh, remote uh, phone banking or if you're uh, in Georgia and you want to help doing canvassing, if that makes you nervous because, uh, you know, hey, who who among us isn't a little socially awkward, right? Or you're concerned about getting too close to people if you're canvassing. Uh, text banking is a great way to do that. And there's dozens of organizations that host these where you can sign up and get people's numbers and you just send them text reminders about the election. You help them uh, find out the registration status, where they can go to vote. And research has shown that get-out-to-vote efforts like these are effective at boosting a candidate a few percentage points or so. And, you know, if we win in Georgia, it's probably going to be just a few percentage points. It might be a fractional percentage point. It might come down to a few hundred, a few thousand votes. There's a real chance to make a real difference here. So if you've got the time and resources, I really encourage you to go uh, volunteer to help out. It's the difference between making a meaningful difference in healthcare and nothing. It's the difference between getting a new Voting Rights Act and doing something about the election security in our country and probably getting nothing done like has happened in the last four years. So fairfight.com, give them some money, sign up to volunteer your time. Uh, I think we have a real chance here. And also, honestly, if we want to turn to the positive, all this Trump bullshit could easily backfire, could easily handicap the Republicans as much as it overall fucks the country, if not more so. Because imagine a a world where a third of conservatives just don't show up for elections for like a generation because they think the whole process is corrupt. Imagine a world where a significant fraction of the conservative electorate, and keep in mind, we don't need that many percentage points to win these races. Imagine a world where they think the GOP sold out their fearless leader and abandoned him. Imagine a GOP fighting off third-party threats from libertarian and constitutional party cranks for the next several election cycles. You know, I I oftentimes see liberals and centrists worry about what radical leftists can do to the Democratic Party, but man, it's nothing like what the bed Republicans are making for themselves. There's not that many radical leftists. They don't have hardly any power within the party. The Republicans are beholden to their crazies. It's going to be a real shit show. So, you know, maybe there's a silver silver lining here. We can dream, can't we? Right? But that's not the kind of dreaming that I want to do in this podcast. Nope. Forget the crazy and corrupt Republicans. There's a lot more of us than there are them. We just proved it conclusively uh, at the national level. You know, we're right. They're wrong. We got more people Let's dream. Let's dream about the future, about what we can do to make the future better. You know how we can take those baby steps towards the Star Trek future for humanity. That's kind of like the foundation of this whole podcast, right? Star Trek Republicans. And it's been a while since we did something like this. Back on Three Right Turns 8, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Burn, we talked about how Medicare for All was not just something we should do to make life better for millions of Americans and their families, but it was also practical, affordable, fiscally responsible even. And in Three Right Turns 11 and 15, we talked about the concept of a universal basic income, a UBI, that would do so much to help our working poor and the middle class and how we could fund these without overburdening either the middle class or the economy and the amount of economic freedom that it would offer to all of us. 
But you'll notice when we talk about these progressive ideas, they're always couched in conservative language about economics, you know, practical, affordable, sensible, responsible. And, you know, I think that's a smart play, which is why I choose to talk about them in in those terms, because this country is pretty conservative. It's a lot more conservative than I think a lot of liberals and progressives want to admit. I think a lot of liberals and progressives are probably more conservative than they would like to admit. But still, given that, I've observed many times in my life thus far over many issues and over many presidential administrations, many political regimes that when it comes to wars, tax cuts for the wealthy, bailouts for large corporations, this country doesn't tend to stop and ask, how are we going to pay for this? And if someone does ask these questions, they're often belittled, their patriotism gets questioned, and at any rate, they just get steamrolled over on the way to spending just trillions and trillions of dollars on these things. But You ask, can we afford to have health care? Can we afford free education for everybody? Can we afford to house and feed those that are without shelter and hungry in this country? Well, suddenly everybody comes out with their calculators. They got their spreadsheets. They all want to know how the hell are we going to pay for all this? And these questions get taken very, very seriously in these circumstances. You know, when we're talking about wars, it's never about Jesus. How can we afford all this? And if so, what are we going to give up in, in return? No, it's all about how we need to make sacrifices in terms of uh, our lives and our, our money. Things that help poor people and working families, those are entitlements, their handouts, their welfare, things that rich people take advantage of to make ridiculous amounts of wealth as investments, enterprise, entrepreneurship. What if all of us, regardless of our level of individual income and net worth, had our own source of wealth? What if we could raise our own funding for healthcare, education, or just generated income for us? What if we funded these things the same way we fund things in the private sector, with smart investments in business and sectors that turn a profit? What would that look like? How could you fund it? What impact would it have on economic inequality? Well, I'd like to introduce you to the Social Wealth Fund for America, an idea that's been put forth in recent years by the People's Policy Project. Now, you might have heard me argue a time or two on this podcast that we need a lot more left-leaning think tanks because the right has hundreds of them all over the country doing all kinds of bad shit, producing all kinds of terrible policy for state, local, and federal government to, to rubber stamp and pass. We need our own version of these think tanks to fight back, you know, not with bad ideas, but with good ideas, not with bad policy, but with with good, well-founded policy and, you know, get the messaging right, all that kind of good stuff. Well, that's what the people's public policy is. Now, of course, I'm going to link the full text of the proposal with sources in the show notes if you want to do further reading and dig more into the math and funding, because you can get really into the weeds with this. But here is the simple one hour podcast pitch. Currently, in the United States, the top 1% of families own more of this great nation's wealth than the bottom 95% combined. In the decade between 2007 and 2016, the average wealth of the top 1% increased by $4.9 million. Meanwhile, the wealth of the median U.S. family fell by 42000 Why does this happen? Why does wealth tend to concentrate in this way? It's because relatively minor advantages in starting wealth often compound quickly over time. People who have wealth often have better educational opportunities. They get preferential loans for housing and investments. They have more familial support. 
These advantages allow them to earn higher incomes. Higher incomes lead to increased savings rates. Those higher savings rates allow them to acquire a larger share of the nation's wealth. And again, all broadly speaking, rich people can be stupid with their money and lose it all. And a poor person can certainly strike it rich under the right circumstances. And certainly it's not just all about the dollars because where you were born, skin color, gender, All these things come into play to either magnify or minimize these all compounding trends. But again, you know, if you're a betting person, the statistical trend is clear. If you have money, it's easier to make more money. And this is that that rocket ship leaving the atmosphere analogy that I've used fairly often on this podcast and elsewhere. The the fact that, you know, if you're in a rocket, you use a vast amount, the majority of your fuel just punching through the Earth's thick atmosphere, just getting that air, that oxygen, that carbon dioxide, all that stuff out of the way. It uses another fair chunk to leave the planet's gravity well, and then hardly any to move around through space. So likewise, once you've got your food, your shelter, your education, all that stuff paid for, which is the atmosphere and the gravity in this example, everything else is like jetting around in the galaxy. You know, it's, it's relatively easy peasy. If you're poor... On the other hand, you're not going to be able to invest to save money because you don't have any money. You won't be able to save for your retirement. You won't be able to invest in stocks. You're never going to be able to punch through the atmosphere and reach the stars. So how can we fight against this seemingly inevitable trend? Well, the People's Policy Project advocates setting up a social wealth fund for all Americans and issuing every citizen one share of ownership into this fund. You get the fund established and the government will start to accumulate assets for the fund to manage things like stocks, bonds, real estate, you know, the same stuff that uh, the wealthy do to create wealth. And regardless of your starting level of wealth or your personal finances, your personal income, the value of your share is going to increase as the value of the assets in that fund increase. Now, no one would be allowed to sell their share or cash it in. It's not going to be like a stock that way. Instead, the fund would issue an annual universal basic dividend each year from the money that the fund generates. Thus, the fund would continue to grow and grow and keep paying out money to you year after year after year. Now, this isn't a new or radical idea. Social wealth funds, um, also sometimes known as citizen wealth funds, have been proposed hundreds of times in the last century. And it's not, like you'd think, just cranks, commies, pinko socialists, those types that have proposed or endorsed these plans. No, a lot of serious economists have spent time working on these ideas. For example, Nobel Prize winning economist James Mead published a paper supporting social wealth funds back in 1964. So it's not a new idea. And you might be thinking, well, this sounds great in theory, but look, it's never going to work in practice because, of course, we all know that the government sucks at making money. It's only excels at really one thing, and that's pissing money away, you know, tax and spend. Government's inefficient as hell, and it'd probably just be throwing a lot of good money after bad. Maybe you could think that because it's pretty much how I felt about things until about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. But social wealth funds aren't just a theory. We can look at how they performed in the real world, because as as of 2016, there's over 80 sovereign wealth funds implemented by more than 60 nations all over the world, which means you don't have to take my word for it or the word of some old Nobel Prize winner. These funds exist and they prove that governments can manage large pools of assets without causing significant problems. 
Before we talk about some success stories, uh, we're going to examine what's been described as a failure, which is unfortunate because at the time, it was the world's most famous social wealth fund. It was briefly established in the 80s and was called the Swedish Wage Earner Fund. The Swedish plan called for using a tax to gradually transfer ownership of Sweden's corporations away from private shareholders into wage earner funds administrated by the country's labor unions. The Swedish companies would be required to pay 20% tax on their profits, but they wouldn't pay that in cash. Rather, they would issue an equivalent amount of new company stock in the relevant wage earner fund. The thought was that if Swedish companies maintained a profit margin of, say, 15%, and Sweden continually reinvested the fund's profits back into buying more shares, the wage earner funds would have a majority ownership and thus effective control of the Swedish companies after just 25 years. It's not quite seizing the means of production, but it's clear that the goal was for everyone in the country to at least equally enjoy in the fruits of the nation's labor. The New York Times covering the proposal noted with some irony that the proposed transition to collective ownership relied upon the country's stock market, the heart of capitalism. So in 1982, Sweden's Social Democratic Party, the SDP, won the general election in part because of a promise to implement this social wealth fund. As you can imagine... The interest of private capital did not take this lying down. Critics called it a socialist program masterminded by Marxist economics of the Swedish Confederation of Trade Unions, which, you know, they're not entirely wrong there. But that's not a factual debuttal. That's just a lazy screaming about, you know, the supposed evil of socialism. But 1980s, height of the Cold War. I mean, hell, those attacks are still pretty effective today. So they they did definitely uh, did some damage back then. Some economists predicted that after the plan, the market economy would cease to exist. Even Sweden's national treasure, the band ABBA, got into the game. Their manager organized a concert to, quote, help finance the fight against a socialist takeover. It was quoted as saying the SDP's electoral victory might be the first time a country would freely vote to go behind the Iron Curtain. Nevertheless, despite this opposition, the plan was implemented in 1984, as George Orwell predicted. Though, as these things usually go, by the time the proposal became policy, it arrived in a much diminished form. You know, it goes in a committee. People say, is that socialist? And people goes, nah, it's not really. And you do some back and forth and you get a weakened form of what you wanted. Under the actual program, the government imposed a relatively small excess profits tax on companies rather than requiring them to directly issue new shares to the fund. That way they could keep control of their company and ownership of their company. Also, they created... Uh, regional funds to hold these assets rather than a national fund to kind of, you know, distribute the responsibility and make it less socialist. These moves were designed to slow down the social ownership of the private companies, and they were effective. But even still, with the cash received from the excess profit tax, it was enough for the Swedish government to buy 7% of all Swedish company stocks by 1991 and put it into the public's hands. Fortunately, That's where the wheels fell off. The fund cratered, and it's a tale as old as time. The fund that was run by idealistic leftists was completely mismanaged. It suffered from grift and all kinds of graft, politicians lining their pockets with the public's money. Incredibly irresponsible. And that's how we know the government can't be trusted with our money. 
<laughs> gotcha. Actually, it was the hue and cry over the creeping socialism that caused the conservative party to retake power in 1991. And they just put a stop to the policy and they took the national fund and they privatized it, turning it into essentially uh, a money market account that Swedes could invest in. And just like that, the greatest experiment in democratizing a nation's economy was strangled in its crib, not because it wasn't working or effective, but because it was perceived as socialist and socialist was bad. The Swedish experiment thus was over, but the Scandinavians weren't done with the idea of social wealth funds. Enter Norway. Ah, Norway, home of the much discussed Nordic model. Hell, you know, just a few episodes ago, we were discussing worker-owned co-ops, and you'll remember that Norway was one of the countries kind of leading the way in democratizing the workplace that in that manner. Yes, Norway, that country consistently in the top five as measured by the World Happiness Index. Here in the United States, we're ranked as 18th and falling and lag far behind our peers in terms of life expectancy and per capita share of the GDP. Norway is happier than us. And they live in total fucking darkness for like two months out of the year. It's amazing. So Norway's central government currently manages three main social asset pools. The government pension fund Norway, which is a stock and bond portfolio that's invested in Norwegian and other Nordic companies. The government pension fund Global, which is a stock, bond and real estate portfolio uh, invested exclusively outside of Norway. So you got Norway and Global. And you have the state-owned enterprises, or the SOE, which is a set of 74 domestic companies that are directly owned by the 12 government industries, which, to be honest, sounds like some real commie shit. Probably a disaster. So just how are these funds doing exactly? Well, in 2016, the Norway Pension Fund controlled assets equal to 7% of the nation's GDP, the gross domestic product. The state-owned enterprises are worth 23% of Norway's GDP. And the Global Pension Fund, it owned assets in excess of 241% of Norway's GDP. 241% of the country's gross domestic product is the equivalent of that is in this Global Pension Fund. Altogether, Norway's central government owns assets equal to 271% of the nation's total yearly economic output. If the U.S. government owned a similar amount of wealth, we'd have a social wealth fund of over $54 trillion. Norway's government funds combined to own a little more than one-third of all the equity listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange. The level of public ownership is nearly five times what the Swedish plan was able to achieve before it was halted. And the end result is that the Norwegian government owns around 59% of the country's wealth. As an interesting comparison... Those godless communist Chinese, their government only owns about 31% of its national wealth. And just to restate, the Norwegians are not an unhappy, oppressed people. The land of the midnight sun is home to the fifth happiest people in the world right now. In case you were wondering, the people of China, 95. We're clocking in at 18 in the land of rugged individual capitalism. As you can imagine, Norway's holdings generate lots of money. Over the last 10 years, the conservatively invested global fund generated an average return of 6%. Over the same period, the Norway fund had an 8% average return. And in 2016 and 17, the combined total return was $133 billion U.S. Had that money been paid out as a dividend to all 
two million Norwegians, it would have provided each with about $25,000 or $100,000 for every family of four. Now, I used to be one of those types that would bemoan the wastes and inefficiency of government. And to be sure, you know, government, it's just as capable of waste and inefficiency as your average corporation. Don't kid yourself. But what the Norwegians are doing has really changed my mind on what our expectations should be for good governance. In 2017, the global's expenses were about 0.06% of its assets under management, and the Norway fund's expenses were 0.07% of its assets. These expense ratios are near the lowest in the world, even when you compare them to private asset management. And this is despite the fact that the funds are actively managed. I mean, hell, that certainly beats out the performance of my 401k and IRAs. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never had a managed retirement plan that costs less than 1% annually. 0.07%, Get out of here. Now, to be clear, Norway is an outlier in terms of just how much wealth it has accumulated in its various social wealth funds. But I think that's why it's so interesting, because you have here a society that collectively owns three quarters of its wealth through social wealth funds administered by a democratically elected government, and there are apparently no negative economic consequences. Norwegians are some of the freest, happiest people of the world. Norway's done it. They got it figured out. But can something like this work in America? I mean, sure, we could sit here and debate uh, the merits about why it may or may not work, or I can just skip ahead to the part to tell you that it already has. It's the Alaska Permanent Fund, or the APF. That's right, Alaska, that famed bastion of socialist thought here in America, has an actually pretty amazing social wealth fund. It pays an annual cash dividend to each and every citizen of Alaska. And we're going to talk about it. The Alaska Permanent Fund was spearheaded in the 70s by Alaskan Governor Jay Hammond. Before his stint as governor during the 60s, Hammond was the manager of a 2,000-person municipality in Alaska called the Bristol Bay Borough, which is quite the mouthful. Bristol Bay had a very profitable natural resource to exploit, salmon. Yeah, salmon, which is great. But 97% of that salmon was being extracted by Seattle-based firms in Washington State, not by local fishermen. Adding insult to injury, these same Seattle companies were preferentially hiring non-Alaskans for workers and then importing them into the state, which denied almost all the benefit of the wealth being generated by Bristol Bay to the Bristol Bay folks themselves. That's not very fair. And yeah, it was a pretty big problem because Bristol Bay had no high schools, no sewer or water treatment facilities. They had no healthcare facilities, no fire, police or ambulance services. The town dumped its garbage into the riverbank in hopes that it would be flushed out with the ice during the high spring tides. Just, you know, sweep it out to the ocean. That's our, gar- that's our garbage plan, right? This was not great for the locals. Probably wasn't great for the salmon, come to think about it. You know, it could be killing the golden goose here. So, future Alaskan Governor Jay Hammond had an idea to turn the situation around. He proposed a 3% tax on the fish catch and then was going to use the revenues to build out a conservative managed investment account that would pay the residents an annual dividend from its investment returns. And as you'll recall, 97% of the salmon was being extracted by Seattle firms. So, hey, you now have 97% of that tax burden falling on non-local firms. That's tax policy judo, and I love it. 
The massive tax take from this fishing transformed the borough into the richest municipality in the nation on a per capita basis. And this is according to Fortune magazine. So Hammond then becomes the governor of Alaska in 1974, and he wants to replicate the success that he found in Bristol Bay. So he did a look at the state's finances, and it revealed that their state's gas severance tax uh, was half that of the national average. Now, a severance tax is the tax a state imposes on the extraction and sale of like a natural resource. It's then moved out of state. It's intended to compensate the state for its lost resource because, you know, once you pump a gallon of oil out of the ground, it's it's gone essentially forever in, in geological time, right? It's severed from the state, if you will, the severance tax. These also cover the cost in terms of environmental and, and infrastructure uh, of this activity borne by the states, too. So Alaska's severance tax was half that of the national average. Hammond proposed doubling it and then chucking that extra avenue into the general fund. This proposal passed. It was then paid out to Alaskans as a small $150 annual tax credit. So this tax and dividend proposal was a success, but it did have a few drawbacks. One, kind of underwhelming. You know, 150 bucks off my taxes. Great. Most people tended to even forget about the benefit uh, that it existed at all. And worse, it didn't do anything to help anyone who was so poor that they didn't pay taxes. You know, if you don't pay tax, a tax credit doesn't do a damn thing for you. So Hammond decided that if another dividend program were to be established, he wanted to put a check in everyone's hand instead of the tax credit. He thought this would hopefully have the effect of helping people realize and recognize and appreciate this whole dividend concept. Once they were invested in the idea, so to speak, they would demand that the state maximize their returns from their resource wealth because that money and significant money was going directly in their pockets. You know, they wanted the, the state to be responsible with it. So in 1976, he got the legislature to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would require 25% of all mineral lease royalties, rentals, royalty sale proceeds, federal mineral revenue sharing payments, and bonuses received by the state of Alaska to be put in a permanent fund. And this measure passed by a two to one margin is very popular. The first year of payments put a modest $700,000 into the fund. So that's in 1976. In 1980, the legislature created a state owned enterprise called the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation or the APFC to manage the Alaska Permanent Fund and created the Permanent Fund Division or the PFD program that began paying dividends to the citizens of Alaska just two years later. Let's flash forward to today. At present, the Alaska Permanent Fund owns about $60 billion of assets. That's about 113% of the state's gross domestic product. If the United States as a whole had a similarly sized fund, it would be worth about $23 trillion. The assets are invested in a broad and diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, real estate, and other ventures. And by doing so, across its 34 years of being in existence, the APF has achieved an annual average return investment of 9%. Each year, a portion of the investment return is plowed back into the fund for inflation-proofing purposes, and the remainder of the return is transferred to the Alaska Department of Revenue in order to pay out to a permanent fund dividend to every citizen of the state. 
In 2017, Alaska's government paid out a dividend of $1,100 to 630,000 citizens. That is equal to $4,400 for a family of four. In some prior years, that dividend was as high as $2,000 or $8,000 for a family of four. Now, remember, we started this conversation by asking how we can reduce wealth inequality. Does the APF accomplish this? Let's check some math. A family making $20,000 that receives an $8,000 benefit increases the income of the family by 40%. On the other hand, a family with an income of $200,000 that make a lot more, receiving the same benefit, sees their earnings boosted by just 4%. That math tends to suggest that the way these funds are distributed would flatten income inequality. And you know what? In 2016, Alaska was the most equal state in the country and has tended to bounce around yearly in the top two or three states by this measure. The bottom line is that Alaskans love this program. 40% of Alaskans say that dividends make a great deal or quite a bit of difference in our lives, with 39% saying they make a fair amount or at least some difference in their lives. Those saying the dividends make the most difference are women without college degrees, unmarried women, mothers with children, and native Alaskan women. Nearly 80% of Alaskans say the PFD checks are an important source of income for people in my community. 84% agree with the statement that as owners of the Alaska Permanent Fund, Alaskan residents are entitled to an equal share of the earnings of the fund. And 74% take it all the way to the extreme, saying that millionaires should also receive the dividend as well. You know, On my current favorite science fiction show, The Expanse, the Belters, uh, these people that live out and amongst the outer planets in zero gravity, they have a saying, the more you share, the more your bowl will become plentiful. What if that's not just like hippie shit? What if that's real? What if everyone having economic opportunities and sharing their state's wealth equally reduced frictions between peoples and classes? Hmm. Hmm. So... The APF is so popular in Alaska that 64% of residents would rather create a state income tax. And Alaska is one of the few states that don't have one rather than reduce dividends in order to cover the state's projected budget shortfall, which means citizens of one of the most conservative states in the country support paying an income tax rather than jeopardize their universal basic dividend program. That's how much they love it. What if the United States government created a national social wealth fund along the same lines as the Alaska Permanent Fund? The People's Policy Project suggests doing this and calling it the American Solidarity Fund. I personally would call it the American Freedom Fund because, you know, solidarity, I mean, that's just pinko as fuck. You can't slap a bald eagle on that. I mean, maybe you can. We we got a program called Social Security passed in this country once upon a time. But at any rate... That's what they want to call it. So we'll just go with that. I'm, I'm just saying that the American Freedom Fund, American Patriot Fund, the American Liberty Fund, you know, those they got some potential. They, they feel like they're a lot easier to market. Maybe. I don't know. But this fund's going to operate the same way that any other social wealth fund operates. Money and assets will be placed in the fund. A public entity will manage those assets in a way that generates investment returns. Then those returns will be used to fund social spending. And in this case, provide a universal basic dividend for the citizens of this country. How can we make something like that happen? 
Well, there's various ways we can add assets to our newly created American Solidarity Fund. For example, voluntary contributions. People would just donate money or other kinds of assets and property to the fund, and the government will encourage people to do so. Which leads us to a very important question. Why the fuck would anyone do this? Well, I don't know. When we're talking like billionaires, why the fuck do the ultra-rich people do anything that they do? Why do they engage in philanthropy? Probably the same reason that anyone does anything, ever. It just makes them feel good. Is that realistic? I mean, I don't know. I do know it's a stated plan of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to give away at least half their wealth before they die. But look how popular the Alaskan Fund is. Think of the bragging rights the ultra-wealthy could get by single-handedly moving the needle on our solidarity fund here. Like, move it a significant digit. I mean, they get in way dumber competitions all the time. They buy sports teams for billions so their communities will love them. Who has the biggest yacht? Who's got the biggest private island? Why not this? Why couldn't it work? I mean, shit, we can even give some kind of economic medal of freedom to large donors. They can, they can wear it at the red carpet events and everybody kiss their ass for it. It's going to be great. They'll love it. And, you know, maybe you're skeptical of this and, and that's fine because it's really not the main way of building our solidarity fund. It's if you can get a handful of billionaires to kind of do something amazing with their cash, then shoot, why not? It's worth a try. Another way we can grow the fund is by ring fencing existing assets. And that just means that we directly transfer existing state assets into our fund. So the United States government, and that means you and me, you know, we the people, we, it turns out, own a large amount of physical assets, including over 450 million acres of land valued at $2 trillion. Nearly 1 million buildings and other structures worth hundreds of billions more, thousands of miles of intercoastal waterway, vast infrastructure projects, bridges, roads, dams, power plants. We also own the electromagnetic spectrum, which we auction off the telecommunications companies, which is how radio and TV stations operate. We, we let them blast their shit through the air and we, the people, get a cut from it. We own it. They get to the lease it from us. So... If we transfer these assets into the fund, we could generate income by renting them out or maybe in certain limited cases, selling them and using the, the revenues from the sales to buy other more promising assets like stocks and bonds. I'm, I'm not talking about like, you know, selling Mount Rushmore, or the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I'm talking about, you know, old dilapidated buildings that someone wants to develop, stuff like that. Also, we can make the governmental agencies using our land and buildings pay rent to the Solidarity Fund. That's a neat trick. Uh, we owned a building that Congress is in. Congress would have to pay us a little bit of rent, you know. IRS, wouldn't that be ironic? Uh, we, the people, would all then collectively become landlords, which, of course, is a time-tested way to build and maintain our wealth. You also also always raise funds the old fashioned way with taxes and fees, not just like payroll stuff, things that take out of people's income. That's kind of counterproductive when you're trying to boost, you know, uh, the equality of income. For example, there's a, a one time market capitalization tax that we could impose to jump start our fund. This would be a one time tax on the market capitalization of all publicly traded companies. Companies could pay this tax in cash or by issuing new shares of the company to the fund, like the Swedish model. You remember that one we started talking about in the beginning, right? But this isn't just some crazy Swedish socialist idea. The Security Exchange Commission already imposes a small one-time market capitalization tax on all newly issued securities, which it calls a filing fee. 
the market capitalization, which is basically the net worth of all public U.S. companies, is about $30 trillion right now. So a one-off 3% market capitalization tax would then bring about a trillion dollars of assets into our fund. Now, I don't know, maybe be worried that, that would handicap the market somewhat, but this amount of money is just a few months worth of the total return provided by the stock of these companies. We could also impose an ongoing market capitalization tax at a, at a much lower rate, of course, say a half percent. You know, I, I swear we're not the whole point of this is not to wreck the economy. You know, we 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 just want to to build the wealth fund. So we could ask the Security Exchange Commission to collect this tax because, again, it already does this for all newly listed companies. So we just be rolling this back. This would be your back taxes. You didn't pay this to begin with. So you, everybody has to pay, pay it up uh, right now. And speaking of newly listed companies, we could use an IPO tax. When a private company goes public, it does so through an initial public offering or an IPO. The reason any company goes public is because having stock increases the value of the company. Publicly listed and traded stock increases the value of your company. Studies have shown that that boost is about 20 to 30 percent of a company's value just by going public. Now, the government creates and maintains the uniform and tightly regulated securities markets that make this premium value possible. So it stands the reason that it should share in the value that it creates. You know, I mentioned that one small time filing fee that the SEC charges to all newly listed companies. Yeah, that's a point oh one two four five percent of the company's market capitalization. Now, you'll notice that that point oh one two four five is a lot, a lot lower than the 20, 30 percent boost in value that the average company enjoys. I mean, You've seen The Wire, right? I mean, if not, Jesus, just stop this podcast right now. Go watch it. He's going to teach you a hell of a lot more in a way more entertaining manner than this podcast ever is going to. But if you've seen The Wire, you know they got this character, Proposition Joe. What's Joe say about business? It's buying for one and selling for two. That's all it is, right? Buy for one, sell for two. The SEC is buying for 30 and selling for .01245. And that ratio is fucked. We could boost that up to 5% on either cash or stock and put that right back into our funds. Easy peasy. What about a mergers and acquisition tax? So the government can impose a tax that's payable again in either stock or cash to companies that merge with or acquire other companies. The FTC already imposes such a tax in the form of the fees it collects during the pre-merger reporting under uh, the Antitrust Improvement Act of 1976. The current fees range from 45000 to 280000 depending on the value of the transaction in question. But this is ridiculous. I mean, AOL and Time Warner make billions, and we the people get a maximum of $280,000 from this? Does this pass the Proposition Joe test? No. Especially since we the people tend to get the shaft in goods, services, and choice with these huge mergers. When's the last time a consumer won any of these deals, you know? When is the last time that we get something out of it? We could raise this to something like 3% of the value of the transaction. Then we can start winning too. The government also can just borrow money at crazy low interest rates to invest in financial assets with high rates of return. 
Between 1990 and 2017, the average interest rate for a one-year treasury bond purchased on the first day of the year was about 3%. During the same time, the average total return of the S&P 500 was 11%. That's going to generate an easy 8% return. Banks get sweetheart loans to turn around and lend us that same money at a much higher rate of return all the time. Why not we the people? Why can't we get some of those sweetheart deals? The project cites the fact that if we had a solidarity fund in place between 1990 and 2017 and borrowed a trillion dollars per year at the prevailing one year treasury bond rate and invested that one trillion into the S&P 500, it would have generated a cumulative return over the period of two point three trillion dollars. So after we. These assets are bought and brought into the ASF. They, of course, have to be managed effectively or they won't perform well. How do we ensure that? Well, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. In Norway and Alaska, they created a new entity to manage their social wealth funds, and that's what we're going to do, too. So Congress would introduce a bill to authorize the Treasury Department to create a new corporation. Let's call it the American Solidarity Fund Corporation, ASFC. The Treasury would appoint its board members and the board chairs and auditor. And from there, the ASFC's board would be responsible for the management of the ASFC itself, including the election of their CEO. Now, while the ASFC would have quite a bit of independence from the Treasury Department, we, the people, can still maintain control over the way these funds are allocated. For instance, the Treasury or Congress could create a process for excluding companies from the fund if the companies are found to violate established guidelines, like maybe they engage in human rights violations or they particularly severe environmental destruction. I mean, you know, what's the point of all this if we're just publicly owning the means of oppression of people and the destruction of the planet, right? Trying to do good things with this. This is the American Solidarity Fund, not the American Oppression Fund. Norway's global public fund maintains exclusion lists along these same lines, too, because they don't want to invest in all that bad stuff publicly either. Also, since the ASF will own shares of companies, it will have the ability to exercise the ownership rights that these shares confer, just like a voter at shareholder meetings. How would we, the people, collectively exercise these ownership rights? Well, the Treasury could issue voting guidelines that the ASFC would have to implement on a vote-by-vote basis. For instance, the Treasury could create CEO pay guidelines that the ASFC must follow when casting shareholder votes for or against CEO pay packages. Or we could do something kind of crazy, allow us citizen owners to directly vote on shareholder matters through a website that's maintained by uh, this this new company. We could be allowed to vote either directly on the shareholder questions or you can give away your voting rights to a proxy organization that you trust to exercise them in your interest. So you can micromanage it or you can uh, offshore that management or offload, I should say, that management. These proxy organizations could register with the ASFC so they could be selected on the website and then the citizen owners would be permitted to change their proxy organization at any time. So, for instance, if you were really interested in labor rights, maybe you give your votes to a labor organization or maybe if you were really concerned with the environment, you could uh, trust your votes with the Sierra Club, you know, whatever. If you were interested in following expert consensus advice always, then you could give your votes away to the newly formed Swizzbold pack, perhaps. Now. I think this part of the proposal is scary for a lot of even fairly reasonable conservative and and liberal types because it just it just kind of feels like speed running to socialism. You know, that we we have seized the means of, of production. You know, it sounds kind of crazy. 
the public having a direct say in proportion to the ownership of a company like any other shareholder. This is scary for what reason again? I mean, why should shareholders only be wealthy and middle class people? Is there something uniquely foolish or stupid about the poor? Is there something uniquely smart and virtuous about the financially secure? Is that is that something that we want to debate on the podcast? Because I take that proposition. Didn't we at one point only let people with land have a say in our government? And now we're here wondering if we should stick with this. What? What is this? A- a- economic feudalism? What if, and I know this is a radical concept, what if it's just the fact that wealthy people have money and poor people don't? There's no value judgment. It's just one group has money and one, pe- one, one group doesn't. There's no uniquely virtuous or villainous uh, qualities, special qualities about either classification of person. But, you know, if you're all about uh, being afraid of the serfs out in the field ruining things, you should know that you could also set this up with a law in place that the public shares would have no voting interest in the company. They had no voting rights at all, effectively making we the people silent partners in these companies. Now, I say boo to that, but hey, you know, I'm just one guy. This is a democracy. The whole point of this is to provide a universal basic dividend, which is paid out of the profits from the ASF. How does this work? As previously mentioned, every citizen should be given one non-transferable share of ownership in the American Solidarity Fund, which is what entitles them to receipt of a dividend. And the share returns back to the American Solidarity Fund when you die. Now, the ASFC could set up a website that looks like sites run by existing uh, market companies like Vanguard or Fidelity, where uh, citizen owners can log on and see their single share of ownership and track its value over time, see its performance and so forth. They would also have a place where they could input their banking information and their address to receive deposits and checks. And the point of this is not just to simplify data entry and, and keep it up to date, but it's also to impress upon people that, hey, you own this chunk. It's yours. It's a real thing. You can see how it does. You can have ownership of the situation. You can hold those accountable for its performance, just like the Alaskans do, just like the Norwegians do. Like Alaska, the dividend amount could be set equal to a five year moving average of the percentage of the fund's market value. This percentage would be set either by Congress or by the Treasury and would aim to, on average, withdraw the amount equal to an inflation-proof adjusted return value for the fund. That way, this is a fancy way of saying we don't ever want to withdraw from the principal. We just always want the fund to pay out of its profits, right? That way, the fund will always keep growing. And use a five-year moving average of the market values to smooth out market volatility because we know, you know, markets go up, markets go down. And this just prevents some years paying out uh, huge, huge benefits and then some years paying out hardly anything. So what does all this mean to a citizen such as yourself? Remember when we said if the United States had a social wealth fund proportionally as large as Alaska's, it would be worth $22 trillion? Well, if we drew a conservative 4% out of that each year, again, that's conservative, and give it to every citizen in the country, it's going to pay out almost $2,700 each year year, every year, and it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And imagine if we had a fund as proportionally big as Norway's, $54 trillion, the payouts would be over $6,000 a year for everybody. That's you, your husband, your wife, your kids, not your dogs, all humans, citizens, $6,000 a year. 
Now, note that none of the funding that I discussed here, and there's all kinds of proposed fundings if you read the full proposal, but none of the ones I discussed here compete in any way with Andrew Yang's idea of funding the universal basic income, which means conceivably you could do both. And it doesn't touch anything about income tax rates either, which if you'll recall an episode where we talked about the Medicare for all is the primary way to fund something like that. Imagine everyone getting $1,000 a month every month and $2,700 each year, and you don't have to worry about paying for health care. A family of two adults and two kids would get about $2,000 a month from their UBI, almost $12,000 a year from their dividend. What would that do for you, for your family, for our country's poor? I'm telling you, as a small business owner myself, this would be transformative. See, I have this crazy idea that it's not moral to hire people and not pay them a living wage, which, you know, really puts a damper on the hiring of people. Neither Swizzbold nor Bald Move has the cash to hire another full time person at a living wage and provide benefits to them. I mean, we just don't. But if all we had to do is provide enough cash to make it worth someone's while to do, I don't know, a couple hours here and there, video editing or community management or merch fulfillment. I mean, we got those needs. We've got that money. And that would make a huge difference. Hiring people right now, I think, is just too risky. There's too many uncontrolled costs that have nothing to do with the job itself. It's hampering entrepreneurship. It's stifling growth and innovation. I'm not kidding. I think this kind of thing would completely change the game in terms of small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, what if we had a smarter, healthier, happier workforce that didn't have to work for peanuts just to survive? Seems like it'd be harder for companies to treat people unfairly. Because they just leave to go to a better company. Perhaps, I don't know, a worker-run co-op. Or maybe people would be more willing to work for peanuts at jobs that they enjoy in a fun atmosphere where they're just trying to make a few extra bucks to, I don't know, save for a bigger house or get a better car or save more for their retirement or spend on hobbies or leisure, whatever they want to do with it. Is this all too radical? Am I dreaming too big here? Anyway... I hope this just at least gets the wheels kind of spinning with what's possible with, with stuff like this. This is not a pipe dream. It's a practical, proven plan with dozens of working models already in operation. And it's a fun little conversation to trap your conservative friends with. Oh, socialism can never work? Well, what about Nor- Norway and their social wealth funds? And when they say, that's not real socialism, you play the great. Well, then it's just a good plan to work, so let's do it. And you can go back and forth with that for hours. It's, it's great fun. And then some people will say that we just can't make it work here. Well, why not? Are Americans just incompetent? We fundamentally greedy, too stupid, more corrupt. Are Alaskans uniquely competent, compassionate and sensible compared to your baseline American? Are these qualities of people only to be found in the Yukon state? Do you believe that? Now, some people will say that, hey, it's because Norway is 99.9% white and Christian. And people that don't look like each other and have different ways of living and thinking and different histories, we just can't pull together for each other long enough to do something like the Norwegians. But I say people feel neighborly towards each other when they think that their neighborhood gives them the opportunities to succeed, when they don't feel like anyone is taking advantage of anyone else. It's not about our differences. It's about just basic fairness. And I'm not one of those dipshits that's going to say that if you fix the the material conditions in society, that racism and sexism and xenophobia and all that stuff is just going to disappear. 
No, those are separate battles that need to be fought and won. But man, it feels like this would be a lot better ground to fight on. Thanks for listening to me during this shit show of a year, 2020. I hope you'll continue to do so in the coming new year. I really look forward to talking about more big picture issues like this in 2021. Although I think it's going to be also, like I said in the beginning, important to hold our allies and the Democratic Party accountable going forward too. You know, Biden and Harris and their team said many times that they ran on the most progressive platform in U.S. history. And a lot of leftists and progressives like me voted for them despite preferring other candidates. And not just because they were merely better than Trump. That's that's a pretty low bar, you know. But I expect them to do their jobs and keep their promises. I want them to fight just as hard for progress as the Republicans do to hold it back. I want them to get out there and do what I advocate for on almost every podcast, which is to convince people Use the bully pulpit. Don't just give us platitudes about unity and coming together and talking complete sentences and coherent thoughts. Bring about the conditions that will make it conducive for people to unite. Perfect this union. Give us justice. Promote the general welfare. All that shit in the Constitution. It's not enough to stop the rhetoric that divides us. You got to bring us together. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing in the years to come. And if I'm not seeing it, we're going to talk about it. As far as our little operation here, me, Jim and Cecily are going to be brainstorming in January about how we can maybe do more Swizzbold stuff without taking away from our pop culture stuff at, at bald move or destroying our work life balance. Uh, we got some plans. I'm going to try to figure out how to handle feedback better because I haven't been super great about featuring it on the show thus far. And I'm going to try to change that in 2021. Got a lot of really cool interviews coming up. Going to be working and talking with a lot of cool people. And as far as feedback, I'm, I'm not sure if that means I'm going to have an, like an off week, every other week feedback only show or maybe do feedback live streams on YouTube or Twitch that I can have Jim pull a podcast or two out of. I, I don't know, but we're going to figure something else out because uh, I got to. Uh, I'm getting too much good feedback and I really appreciate it. Uh, you can always send that to 3RT at Swizzbold.com. And if you value the information perspective that I provide on the podcast, boy, I sure would appreciate your support. You can go to patreon.com slash Swizzbold and you can directly contribute to the production around here. Get some cool perks, and exclusive Swizzbold content like our monthly live streams, which is coming up real soon now. In fact, it's, it's this coming Tuesday, December 15th. So if you want to get on a little Swizz Bold holiday stream, it's not too late to join today and get access to over a year's worth of streams all on patreon.com slash And now I'd like to thank all of our Fred level patrons. Thank you to Anoka Jung, Mark Hahn, Laura Luthi, Brandon DeVito, George P. Burdell, Angela Murano, Jared Harrelman, Brian Rasmussen, Lisa Singleton, Dave Satterley, Jordan Hoyt, Arvind Rao, Kira Grushow, Greg Rasp, Slava Kasreliovich, and James Taylor. Could not do this without you. So, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a very Happy New Year for us all. This is what I'm wishing for. I think we've earned it. So, I hope you can find a way to make your friends and family in your life feel your love and feel how much you need them and how much you love them, even if it's not in person in this holidays. And maybe we can all meditate on the meaning of I'll be home for Christmas. You know, that whole line, if only in our dreams, as we're all kind of waiting for the vaccine and for life to get back to normal. So until next year, keep dreaming 
of a future full of universal health care, UBIs, social wealth funds, and of course, white Christmases. I'll see you next year.